The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see you tonight. And just so people know, we do ask that people stay to the end of the program. Um, we always try to uh, try to leave it 10 minutes or so at the end for questions and discussion, but it's it's just polite to wait to the very end, not to leave during that discussion time. So if that works in your schedule, that would be best. And we'll be done right about 8:30. So most of you know, those who've been around know that we've been uh, looking at this topic of the storytelling mind. And tonight will be the last night, and then we'll pick up. We'll start uh, the next chapter starting next Sunday. And as I mentioned last week, and Jack Kornfield quotes Ajahn Buddhadasa, that uh, a very apt description of our world, our minds, is that we are lost in thought almost all the time. So in the instructions tonight, you know, I just, uh, this instruction to be reflective, and it's very interesting how much power there is in this. It's like we're opening up some space and we're recognizing, oh, it's like this. And normally when we're in more of a control mode, you know, what we do is we get lost in some story, get absorbed into some mental drama or mental story, thinking, obsessing. And we realize it, and then we generally react to that by constructing another little story that we get lost in. It could be something simple like, I'm bad to have been thinking about that. Let me think about that, how bad we are, why we're so bad, whether we're more bad than somebody else or less bad than somebody else. So the question is, how do we change that so that one obsessive pattern of thinking leads to another? How can we do something other than that? And that's really what this instruction is all about. How to, in a sense, step back and recognize, oh, it's just obsessive thinking happening. Well, can this be okay? And see, that doesn't, it's not about answering that question, can this be okay? It's about creating a balance in the mind that can include how it is. And it may sound like we're just submitting to our obsessive patterns, worrying, planning, judging, comparing. But it's not a submission at all, even though we're just acknowledging, oh, it's like this now. The important thing for us to realize directly is how potent that reflective way of being is in transforming the mind or heart. And you have to, in a sense, see it to believe it. Because it doesn't seem like much to be, you know, in a moment-to-moment -moment way, just acknowledging that it's like this. The mind is doing this. The body's like this. It's like this. It seems pretty feeble. But this is the primary instruction for working with the mind, is to reflect, oh, 
It's like this. Thinking, any emoting, whatever it is. It's not about controlling it. It's just about recognizing it's like this. And in that moment of recognizing like this, there will be right there in that recognition a sense of whether what it's doing is skillful or not skillful. And then the response, whatever that is, that's just going to arise up in the moment. We don't even have to sort of figure out the response to the way it is now. Now, sometimes um, our thoughts, the content of our thoughts, the emotions, they're very seductive. Even if we're able to get some space and recognize, oh, it's just thinking. The charge, the sort of emotional charge that's been whipped up in the body because we've been obsessing for five minutes or ten hours or whatever, that's, that has its own momentum. So even though we may notice in a moment, oh, it's just thoughts, just this mental content moving in the mind, and generally the content might disappear immediately, like popping, like a bubble pops. But the visceral charge doesn't change so fast. So if we've gotten tight because of this obsessive thinking, we may see that thought, the thoughts go away, but that charge is still in a sense there, vibrating in the body. And we have to immediately notice that. And if there's any wavering in the mindfulness, the particular pattern of tension, the particular visceral emotional feeling is likely to trigger more of the same kind of thinking. And that takes some time to dissipate. The content itself can disappear in an instant. But the charge in the body takes some time. So this is why it's so frustrating for us. Because even when we gain some skill and we have enough space, enough capacity to be reflective that we can notice, not just be lost in thought, but notice, oh, this is just thinking happening. But we have to be really persistent with the mindfulness. And in particular, that with the charge in the body, so the Buddha teaches, of course, that we uh, cultivate a continuity of mindfulness, continuity of awareness. That's that very clear and relaxed and simple presence. It's so simple. And you have to remember that mindfulness is simple so we don't complicate the practice. But sometimes the momentum of that mindfulness isn't very strong. And even though we make an attempt, maybe a feeble attempt, to be mindful of thinking, it's like we're drowning. And it, drowning meaning we're lost in our thoughts about things, worrying about something. And then we sort of surface. You know, We've been underwater drowning, and now we've surfaced. And we recognize that we're obsessively thinking, or worrying, or planning, or judging, or craving, or comparing. So there's a moment of recognition that's like a moment of mindfulness. And we know in that moment of mindfulness that we're about to go under again because the content is really seductive. And even though part of the mind recognizes it's just drama, you know, it's just these sensations, it's just this mental content, this mental activity happening, being known, it's just like this. Part of the mind feels, yeah, but it's relevant. <laughs> I have to think this. This is important. There's somewhere I'm going to get with this thinking. And so this is when the mindfulness doesn't have enough momentum. 
we can get pulled in over and over again. So the Buddha offers five additional instructions for removing distracting thoughts. Mindfulness is in one of these five. Mindfulness sort of stands alone in the sense that it's not really dependent on, I guess you could say, willful effort. You know, it's really more this this sort of sense, this uh, skill we learn. In Zen, they have this great word phrase for it. They call it the backward step. You know, learning how to take the backward step. Normally, something happens, and we always take a forward step. We do this. We try to get rid of it. We try to get it. But mindfulness is really a backward step, meaning we're not uh, we're not concerned with the particular conditions of the body or mind. The backward step is like a recognition that it's like this, as opposed to our response being a conditioned response. So this is happening, I'm going to do this. The five strategies really are on, and more on the conditioned level. We're actively, uh, we're sort of actively engaging the conditions in the present moment, working with the mind and body in a more direct way, not just trusting awareness, trusting simple, clear, relaxed presence to take care of us. So I'll go through these five tonight and then save some time for people to share maybe from your own practice how these have arisen for you. And this is in a discourse in the middle length discourses of the Buddha. And if you're interested in getting the reference, just see me. I think it's number 20 in the middle length discourses. So the first thing the Buddha says is, you know, practitioners when pursuing the higher mind, a concentrated mind, a collected mind, from time to time, once you give attention to five signs, what are the five? Here, when a practitioner is giving attention to some sign, and owing to that sign, there arise in him or her unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, and with delusion. So some sign could be a sound, could be the breath, the sensations of the breath, could be a memory, could be tactile experience in the body. So any phenomena, basically, and we're attending to that phenomena. And owing to that, greed, aversion, or delusion arise in the mind. And we're beginning to drown, you know, because when the mind is under the influence of greed and delusion and aversion, one of those three unwholesome roots, the tendency is for reactive patterns to come up, in a sense, to the surface. And we get seduced. We get attached or identified with those reactive patterns based on the aversion or driven by the aversion or the greed or the delusion. And then you know, we react. The mind gets in a reactive or begins to struggle. And that struggle creates tension or stress or dukkha. And dukkha, the stress itself, is diluting. So diluting means that we're not seeing things as they are. And specifically, it means we're not noticing how unproductive the struggling is, how destructive it is. So it's not like we willingly do things that are destructive, but these patterns aren't being seen because part of the quality of the pattern or characteristic of these patterns is they're diluting. We don't see clearly when the mind is reacting out of aversion or reacting out of craving. 
So the Buddha has five additional strategies, starting with something relatively subtle and going to something relatively not subtle or dense. But the point, you know, of this spectrum of strategies is anything is better than to just allow the mind to be sucked into negative thinking, obsessive thinking, this kind of drama or that kind of drama where we're reinforcing patterns that lead to stress and suffering for ourselves and others. So the first strategy is sometimes called substitution or replacement. So we're sitting, owing to a particular sign, greed, anger, and delusion or delusion arise and some reactive pattern gets set in motion. We're getting seduced. Even though we may have some mindfulness of that reactive pattern, it's not enough to liberate the mind from that particular pattern, from that identification. So we remember this teaching from the Buddha. Okay, what was that first strategy that the Buddha talked about? And all, we, all you need to remember is the first word or the image. And I'll give you the image. Because that will, that's enough often to remember how to practice. And then once you do it, it may feel a little awkward at first, but once you do it consciously, awkwardly a few times, then it's just going to be a strategy just available for the mind. The mind will just start using it organically without you even having to do it. But I recommend that you try it out. So you, you're actively going to try out substitution. So when your mind is obsessing, driven by aversion, for example, resentment, hatred, wanting to get even, why did that person do that? And then you realize how, in a moment, how this is not what you want to be doing with your mind. And you remember substitution. And the image the Buddha has is, just as a carpenter would take a nice, solid, hardwood peg, pound it in, and push out the old rotten peg. In the same way, we insert a particular thought into the mind, and by really, with resolve, putting the attention, applying the mind to that thought, we suppress or push out the other thought. Because when I'm focused on this, I can't be obsessing on that. And in particular, certain thoughts make useful pegs. So when there's aversion, a useful peg to push out aversion is some quality of loving kindness or compassion or forgiveness, basically some quality of the heart one of the four Brahma-viharas, or divine abodes that some of you know about. Loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. So it could be like if you're dealing with a lot of hatred or resentment or anger. You know, it could be that you just recognize how tight the body is obsessing about it. And then just start caring about it. So it can be that simple. Oh, the mind and body really hurts. This really hurts. I care about this tension in the mind. I care about this grip in the body. I care about this. Or it could be something completely unrelated. Like you, you know, often say you remember your pet at home. Lying there on your bed or, you know, oh, I care about you. May you be happy. But any, basically anything that allows the mind to change the channel to something that's very positive. Now the interesting thing about this strategy is 
to do this, like if I'm almost entirely obsessing with some kind of aversive pattern, impatience, resentment, in order, just in order to remember that there's something to do, that means there's a little weakness in the obsessive pattern. So you see, having these different strategies are basically ways to recognize how the identification with the anger is not 100%. And then not only that, but if we bring to mind, if we're capable, this is subtle, but if we're capable of bringing to mind the opposite state, like loving kindness as opposed to anger, then you see what that does is, even though the anger and the, the different thoughts and images and visceral feeling in the body is very seductive, but if we can remember loving kindness in that moment, do you see how it deeply weakens? Because anger depends on that sort of complete, like it's defining our reality completely. To really get worked up with anger, you have to be completely lost in it. Anger doesn't quite work when you realize it's just anger. You know, it's like a monster. You know, monsters don't work if you can kind of see, oh, that's just a costume, you know? You've got to like really think it's a monster to give it the full appropriate reaction, you know, like to run or to be frightened. And it's the same thing with anger. If there's a little kink, a little break in it, and we can actually imagine, bring to mind loving kindness, it, 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 uh, it undermines the mind's tendency to become absorbed, to become fully identified with anger when it arises in the mind. So this is the most subtle, besides mindfulness, this is the most subtle strategy. It may not work, and that's why the Buddha gave us four more. But it's really good. So try it. Now, I'll just mention briefly, like if, if your obsessive pattern is really being driven by craving instead of aversion, then you know loving kindness may not be the right thing. Impermanence is often the right thing, reflecting on impermanence. Because impermanence, like when you think about craving, you know, as a monster, right? Like the the needy, the wanting monster in our mind. What makes it so compelling is that it's completeness. Like I really will be happier if I get this. And so the idea of impermanence or the, the reflection of impermanence or somehow understanding that everything changes, nothing is for sure, everything is in the process of coming and going, that puts a real kink in that, that sort of the power of craving to draw us in. Because we have to think, like when it, my wife and I, when we're uh, about to begin um, who knows how big, but some kind of kitchen renovation, yet to be determined how significant. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like so easy to think, you know, if you put your mind in a particular way, reflect in a particular way, you can really think, God, it's going to make such a difference, you know. <laughs> sure, it's going to be troublesome. I mean, we're not stupid, so we know it's going to be troublesome, but there's just a sense, oh, it will be so nice to have this pleasant space. We spend so much time in this room. Be nice, this floor, you know. Because, you know, then, then you just start noticing all the flaws, all the way, 
how old the linoleum is, how many times it's gotten, you know, different rips and tears in it and things that don't clean anymore and all the different, you know, things. You just see, oh, yeah, this would be healthy, to, you know. <laughs> This is the liberation the Buddha taught, you know, a nice kitchen. You can, I mean, it can really feel like powerful. And then if you bring in impermanence and you realize that this was once a nice kitchen, <laughs> you know, back and whenever it was finished last. And, uh, you know, whatever we do, it will change. And even if it doesn't change, we will no longer appreciate it for whatever reason or no longer be there to appreciate it. So, now it doesn't mean you don't do the kitchen renovation, but it means there's not as much delusion about it. You understand, this is not about ultimate happiness. You know, this is about maybe taking care of the building, um, not letting things get too far before you kind of maintain them. And it, impermanence, the reflection of impermanence, takes the wind out of craving. So you can just work with those two antidotes in terms of the substitution or replacement. And just remember two things, one of two things. You know, either remember the peg as the first strategy or the word replacement or substitution. And that will really help you sort of, sort of recall these different, this strategy, this particular approach. And then the Buddha goes on to say, so there you are, you know, bringing your mind to an opposite sign. So you want to dwell in impatience, but you're remembering loving kindness. And still, unwholesome thoughts arise, dependent on greed or aversion or delusion. Then, the Buddha suggests that we reflect on results or reflect on consequences. That's what you can remember. So just results or consequences. And the image is very provocative, which is, you know, uh, a young man or woman who's really into looking good, looks down and recognizes there's a necklace, a garland of rotting flesh around their neck. And just as they would be quite appalled and disgusted seeing the rotting flesh around their neck, in the same way, if we reflect on the aversion, greed, delusion that is sort of driving our thinking, we'll recognize, oh my God, this is not the mind or the heart that I want to set in motion, that I want to cultivate. In Buddhism in particular, you know, there's a real emphasis on cause and effect. And the future is being created right now by what the mind, how the mind is relating. That's the, that's the present moment input. So the only way to affect the future is to look at that present moment input. Am I relating with aversion? Then I am setting in motion hate, anger, impatience, fear, and aversion. Am I relating with greed or craving? Then we're setting in motion craving and lusting and wanting and needing. Am I relating with delusion? Then I'm setting in motion delusion, not seeing things as they are being confused by things. So we reflect. It's like we're you know, noticing what the mind is doing and then sort of walking it out into the future and we're getting a sense of what's being set in motion and just reflecting. Is this 
what I want. So you see, this is really from a self-centered point of view, trying to take care of ourselves, as opposed to just that more sort of ultimate practice of just being mindful. This is when mindfulness isn't strong enough. So we have substitution. We have reflecting on the results or reflecting on the consequences of what the mind is doing. And now the third is um, ignoring or redirecting or averting attention. So now you, this, is, this could really, um, you know, all of these have a shadow to them. Uh, they're not, you know, the nice thing about mindfulness is there's no negative shadow to it at all. You can't, like, have too much mindfulness. Or it can, it's only positive being mindful of how it is now. But, like, for example, with ignoring, it could easily morph into some kind of repression. You know, no, I'm not going to look at that. But what it really is about, and uh, maybe I'll just read how the Buddha describes it. If while one is examining the danger in those thoughts, right, that's the second strategy, but there still arises in him or her unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, craving, with hate, and with delusion, then one should not, uh, then one should try to forget those thoughts and should not give attention to them. And the example he gives is just as a person with good eyes who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight would either shut his eyes or look away. So too, when she tries to forget those thoughts and does not give attention to them, then any unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, with delusion, or abandon in him or her and subside. And what came to mind is, you know, when kids get a hold of things they shouldn't be playing with, you know, the parent takes it away, hides it, puts it on top of the fridge or something. And then, uh, you know, the kid may freak out for a while, but eventually out of sight, out of mind. And it's the same with us. When we're around somebody that's, you know, triggering a lot of anger or a lot of craving, you know, well, maybe leaving and doing something else may be just a ticket. Instead of like staring at the thing that's triggering the aversion and desire and saying, I shouldn't be aversive or I shouldn't be craving. So we want, uh, you know, in our back pocket, we should have more than a handful of things we can do to skillfully distract ourselves. So we're not dependent on unskillful distractions. You know, whatever it might be, going for a walk or, you know, pulling out a relatively wholesome novel or taking a bath or... Um, calling a friend that you can have a wholesome conversation with. Because, you know, all of us, each of us in our own way, there are these holes we can fall into. You know, like old memories that we can just chew on in a way that's not helpful. Like memories that have a lot of resentment associated with them. Or thoughts about the future that tend to stimulate a lot of craving. Like, if only, you know, this would happen at work, then, you know, if only the political leaders did this, then the world would be a great place. Or if this happens, the world is going to fall apart and we're all going to die. And so we can get in to the, you know, if we fall into these holes, we get trapped into negative thinking. So if we fall into that hole over and over again, 
and we try being mindful and we try bringing something positive to mind you know we try to reflect on how unwholesome how we're setting emotion really a lot of stress for ourselves and it's not working then it would be nice you know to go see Harry Potter I don't know if that's wholesome I haven't seen it yet but you know maybe that's a sort of just barely wholesome I'm not sure (laughs) probably it depends a lot on your attitude you bring to it but certainly it's not as whole as unwholesome as other things we could do with our time so it's nice to have a few things that are just available so when because like I said at the beginning the last thing we want to do is just allow our mind the thinking mind to be drawn into negative thinking over and over again because all we're doing is setting a motion of future with more of the same and nobody nobody who's conscious would do that it's only because we don't understand what we can do about it that we continue it or we don't realize how, how, how harmful it is to continue in those negative patterns so see if you can remember what's the first one second one yeah, yeah, reflecting on consequences. Third one? Ignoring, yeah, or averting attention. And then the fourth one, now the shadow for the fourth one is that we'll get sucked right back in because the instruction here is to reconstruct, like, how did I get here? You know, here I am obsessing in this negative way, driven by greed, driven by aversion, driven by delusion. And then we're, we ask, well, how did I get here? Like, how did, how did my mind get so caught up, so entangled with this? What's the hook? And the image the Buddha uses is, uh, um, you know, just as somebody walking quickly along, I think, why am I walking so fast? Maybe I'll just walk slowly. And then walking slowly, one thinks, why am I walking slowly? Maybe I should just stand still and, wa- and standing still one thinks well maybe I should sit down sitting down maybe I should lie down so in the same way you know we're we're moving from what's in a sense big and active in the mind to something that's more subtle so the mind is obsessing driven by greed or aversion let's say and we notice that and we try these other things you know we try being mindful we try bringing in a positive thought we try reflecting on the consequences or results of this kind of thinking. We try ignoring. None of that works. So now we turn directly to it, to the hook, to the monster itself. But with, you know, the only thing that makes this different than just being swept along with the negative thinking pattern is we've got some curiosity or some quality of investigation. What's the hook? What's, how did this come to be? What's making this so seductive and we're going from the sort of big thing and the thing about our minds and all of reality really is it's cause and effect it's like the obsession the negative thinking pattern didn't come from nowhere there are supporting causes and conditions and if we're interested enough we can step back so the second strategy reflecting on results we're stepping forward we're imagining what is this leading to what kind of mind or heart is being cultivated or reinforced with the fourth strategy we're walking back how did this come to be 
So if you're obsessing, let's say you're just uh, irritated by somebody, your partner, let's say, or good friend, you know, and then it just occurs to you, you know, okay, well, how, how did this come to be? And then maybe you realize that, you know, you don't feel good about yourself or you feel jealous or something. And so then, you know, that's a little bit more subtle than thinking she's a jerk or he's a jerk, doesn't love me or something. You go, oh, I'm hurting, you know, I feel needy. And then you can look a little deeper, a little more subtle. Oh, there's a strong sense of a somebody who needs something. You know, we're really getting to the core, the subtle core of what a moment ago was something big and colorful and seductive. So this is that tracing back. That's the word or phrase I like for this. Uh, reconstructing is another way you could remember this. And then just remember the image of, you know, from running to walking to standing to sitting to lying down, moving from gross to subtle. And again, like I said at the beginning of this point, um, it's very easy as you're looking at it and trying to understand how this came to be to just get swept away with it. But at least you're making an attempt not to be swept away by analyzing it. And the other thing to remember is how all of these strategies involve thinking. You know, a lot of times people with a superficial understanding of Buddhism think that thinking is just inherently bad. But thinking that leads to more thinking is not helpful. Thinking that leads to insight and balance of mind, that's useful. So thinking is sort of a neutral thing. It can be used to create, to sort of reinforce really unhealthy, stressful patterns in the mind. And thinking can be used to liberate the mind. Even mindfulness, even the strategy that is most subtle, most effective, at times involves thinking. Like the thought, oh, it's just this being known. That's thinking. It's really useful. You know, there are times in practice where a question can be so useful in, in, in directing, aiming the attention toward things as they are. So in a sense, that's a good definition of right thinking or skillful thinking is thinking that directs the mind toward things as they are. And unwholesome or wrong thinking is thinking that directs the mind toward things not as they are, you know, delusion, ignorance, being disconnected from the way it is. And now the last of the five strategies is, you could call it resistance, or I go right to the image, the Buddha used crushing mind with mind. I like that a lot. I'll read it because it's kind of funny and it's unusual to hear um, such an aggressive strategy uh, in Buddhism. But if the alternative is to be sucked into some destructive pattern, then just like a parent would be willing to be quite forceful and aggressive to prevent their son or daughter from being harmed, why wouldn't we be willing to do the same for our mind if there were no softer, more effective strategy. So here's what the Buddha says in this discourse. If while giving attention to stilling the thought formations, that's the tracing back, right? We're moving from something gross and active and colorful to something more subtle, more subtle. 
So if while giving attention, tracing back, stilling the thought formation of those thoughts, there still arises in her or him unwholesome thoughts connected with craving, with hate, and with delusion, then with his or her teeth clenched and his or her tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one beats down, constrains, crushes mind with mind. <laughs> I will not do that. I'm not going to think about that again. This isn't helpful. No, it's like bringing up that willful resolve. But what's it coming from? Even though it's kind of gross, effortful, it's really coming from the thread of wisdom that understands just getting sucked in one more time isn't helping anybody. So we, we allow that more forceful, I guess you could say aggressive quality of the mind because the Buddha, in the, in the image, he says, uh, just as a strong person might seize a weaker person by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him, crush him, so too, and then he goes on to say what I said a moment ago, you know, with the teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, mouth one constrains and crushes mind with mind. This one article that was in Insight Journal quotes the Bible. Some of you probably know this passage from, I guess, the Sermon on the Mount, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So clearly this pattern can lead to self-hatred. You know, that's the shadow of this, right? Like hating ourselves for being over and over again sucked into negative patterns. So the reason why we emphasize mindfulness, and if that doesn't work, substitution, reflect on the results, we want to try all of these. We don't just go to crushing mind with mind every time the mind gets distracted or there's some craving or some aversion in the mind. You know, because what we'll be reinforcing is struggle and self-hatred and who knows what else, other unwholesome patterns. But when nothing else works, then we practice on that edge, like how to rally the appropriate strength of mind to prevent this mind from doing what's not helpful, not wholesome. What? How can I access that sort of inner parent that is willing to put his or her life down on the line to protect her child? And you know, one of the things that's really beautiful, even though it's, it's clearly a very dense strategy, is this uh, willingness not to give up, right? I'm not gonna give up, I'm not gonna believe that I have to resign myself to being, you know, this person lost in negative, unwholesome, unhelpful patterns. Because, in a, in a sense, the only thing we got in the end is that thread of wisdom that can discern this isn't helpful, this is helpful, right? And if we give up, if we're help, helpless and Basically, we're undermining that thread of wisdom and saying, well, I guess it doesn't matter just to get sucked in. 
you know, and spin with this craving or this aversion. Now, I know from my own experience, and probably I know it's true for you as well, we do let ourselves spin in negative patterns. But the more we practice, the more intolerable that is. It becomes harder and harder to just give up and let the mind act out, whether acting out means just in thinking or acting out in terms of our speech and and our actions as well. It just becomes harder and harder to do that because we more and more clearly know there are consequences to this. And you know, when the in the bigger sort of cosmological view, it's like there's no end. It's like uh, sometimes we think, well, it doesn't matter if I make a mess of my life. I'm 53, you know. There's already a lot of things going on in my life that aren't any good. So what does it matter if I become an alcoholic? Or what does it matter if I cheat on my partner? Or what does it, you know, it almost feels like we can get this death wish. But that death wish, that idea that it doesn't matter, is based on a particular worldview that we don't actually know is true. What's that worldview it depends on? That somehow we just need to get to the end of this life and then it's over, right? So it doesn't really matter how much negative stuff we set in motion because, you know, I just need to get to this life without, you know, being tortured or without... But if you, if you just open your mind, not believe it blindly because we don't know, but if we just open our minds to the fact that whatever gets set in motion has consequences, then all of a sudden it starts to matter what we're doing with our mind. It's not just about getting to the end of this life because if not us, this person, this mind stream, some sentient being is going to receive the results of whatever this sentient mind sets in motion. And we start to feel responsible. This is where the compassion comes out of. And again, we don't need to pretend we know what happens at death. And But it seems pretty clear to me, you know, from my own experiences and my own under, study, that although the body has a very clear trajectory of birth and growing up and aging and dying and death, it doesn't seem at all clear that that's what's happening with the mind, right? You know, people before they, they, they die, is their mind following the natural kind of trajectory of the body? No. Our minds have a lot of momentum at the time of death, the mind stream. So, you know, in the West, because of our, our religious uh, devotion to science, sort of material or biological science, we have the sense that the mind arises out of the physicality, out of, out of biology. And so we just assume, you know, when the body goes, the mind goes. But, you know, that's not the view from the East, which is the material world is a reflection of the mind, arises out of the mind. And actually, you can't prove it one way or another, at least not, you know, from our current situation. But what's important is not to be blinded by our religious devotions to science or to anything, you know, but to stay open and rely on our direct experience. Because that's all we have. You know, humility and our direct experience is all we have. Thinking that we know 
is always a problem. You know, you know, because that's what everybody tells us. So when we have that sense of the continuity of the mind as a possibility, then we're willing to do anything to set in motion wholesome future for the mind out of compassion. And there's no, it never makes sense to give up. That's the other thing that comes. Giving up only makes sense when we don't understand the predicament we're in. It always makes sense to make whatever effort, whatever skillful effort we think we can make in that moment to set in motion something more positive than would otherwise be set in motion. Giving up doesn't make sense. Not that it doesn't, you know, I mean, clearly it's compelling to give up when things are difficult at times, right? So that's when, like, distraction, wholesome distractions. It's not like we want to give up. It's like, I'm tired. The mind's exhausted. It needs refreshment. That's not giving up. That's like choosing the battle. Like, I can't, I can't uh, practice in this way now, so I'll practice by refreshing the mind, sort of creating the causes and conditions where the mind will have more stability, more clarity, more calm. So we go seeking some wholesome joy for the mind to refresh the mind, go laugh with some friends, or like I said, go see Harry Potter with the right attitude and the right friends. You know, you can leave activities, even mundane activities like blockbuster films, feeling refreshed and ready to sort of re-engage life as it is. So I'll leave it here so there's time. It'd be nice to hear from people, examples of maybe how you've used some of these five strategies or questions you might have. So what comes to mind? And please say your name. Yeah. Well, kind of bummed on this. I don't want to say anything. Not quite a bit about the spy strategy. And you see half of the monastics are hard for a lady that's exposed to that experience of the most everyone. You got trouble some people, you got trouble some workplaces, you got trouble some environments. Every day it's the same, the same, the same. The Dhammapada, which is Just like you said, these are strategies when you're already dealing with fruits that are negative. You know, like something got set in motion or something's gotten triggered five minutes ago or whatever, and now you have to deal with it. And how do you avoid having all this stuff to deal with? Sounds like is your question. And you know, and you sound like you you've done some studies, so you probably know this, but there's a real emphasis in the Buddhist tradition on sila, especially Theravada Buddha. Buddhism makes a big deal about ethical conduct or living in harmony and cultivating things like generosity. You know, the uh, in, in Buddhism it's called generating merit. And how do we generate merit? Well, we practice generosity. We practice uh, integrity or ethical conduct. And we practice training the mind. And if we do this kind of work, 
you know, even as lay people, we can do this work. You know, we can really uh, look at all of our relationships and bring them in line with basic values of kindness, sharing, taking turns, you know, listening, whether they're at work, in the family, in the community. And like you mentioned, you know, being around people, gravitating towards people who share these values really makes it easier. And so if you're, if you're in environments that make it impossible to cultivate these, uh, these values, then if you can, get out of those environments and into other environments. It's really important. One of the great tragedies is being in a situation where uh, there's just a lot of negativity. Because, you know, in Buddhism, the, the deepest teaching, you know, is anatta, the not-self, the, the sort of lack of a center to what we call this life or this self, this person. There's something happening, but there's no center to it. And one of the sort of obvious manifestations of this, this experience or this reality of the conditional nature of things is that just to notice how much who I am depends on where I am. You know, and I, when I go home, I hang out with my folks and my family, there's this mark. And when I'm with my partner alone, I, there's this mark. And when I'm in front of all of you at Common Ground, there's this mark. And, and when we really are honest about that, we really see that who we are is a lot about our environment. And boy, I've really used this in my life. And I think it's been as important as anything, just gravitating towards spiritual community. Right from the very beginning, in the early 80s, just as much as I could, being around spiritual communities and around people with more experience than me. And it's made such a difference. So, you know, I often, when people share to me that they're really inspired by the practice and they want to take the practice to the new level, you know, I often say things like, get involved here. Not because we need stuff to be done, which we do, of course, but because being closer, you know, being around people with the same values really supports the practice. It's still messy. You know, you mentioned <laughs> you describe lay people, but that's really true, I think, even in monasteries, even really good monasteries. There are troublesome people there, you know, that push buttons. And there is planning and building and, you know, other things that maybe not as crazy as a typical lay person, but still it can be quite, quite difficult, even for monastics. But the advantage is, in the end, there's some shared values, and that really helps. Jerry, you had a thought? Uh, I was just going to say that uh, lately I've noticed that um, you know, negative thought or some kind of help, my mind be going towards being obsessed with something. And then there's another part of this hand is trying to be mindful and think of myself. You know, as long as I'm mindful, I don't have to deal with whatever this negative thought or obsession is. And I guess I'm wondering, I mean, it doesn't have to feel bad or really tight or anything, but I'm wondering if that could be Well, mindfulness can, I mean, what we call mindfulness can sort of, um, I was going to say the word stun, but it, it, it can sort of um, freeze or uh, paralyze sort of negative patterns, but not necessarily uprooting them. 
And because this is especially when there's some samadhi. Like samadhi gives us like Teflon for the mind. Samadhi means calm or concentration. So when, when we practice regularly, sit every day, go on retreats every once in a while, we start having some of that Teflon where it's like there's a little space or distance between these afflictive patterns. We see them, but we're not being drawn into them because the calm, we'll lose, we're attached to the calm, basically. And as we get drawn into the afflictive patterns, we lose it. So we hang out in the calm. It's there, hovering. But we're not really uprooting these patterns. And that's where the more pure wisdom or Vipassana practice, you know, when we're doing that, then we're, we're actually investigating. And we're not afraid to get messy. Because in order to investigate, we have to sort of relax. We have to really see clearly the unwholesomeness of the unwholesome pattern. You know, it has to bloom. And we have, because the ultimate, what uproots the pattern isn't just seeing that it's unwholesome. It's seeing that it's not self. And the way you see that it's not self is you're not afraid of it arising in the mind because you know it's going to cease. That it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually represent you in any real way that we generally imagine it. So we let the rage arise and cease. And it's scary because we're afraid we're going to act it out and actually speak out that rage or you know, even hit. But with confidence, we're willing to let the afflictive emotions move freely without acting them out, but also not needing any kind of repression, even the relatively wholesome repression of using samadhi, that kind of calm presence, to keep some distance from it. So, I mean, basically, it's really skillful. And then as you gain confidence, then uh, get interested in it, you know? Even if, and be willing to let go of the calm. You know, don't be afraid, because you know how to get the calm. So you can restable it as you need to. You have to leave it here. Thanks, everyone. And let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words.